loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Peg Conway. Peg earned a master's in journalism and worked in corporate communication before focusing on raising her family. Now she writes and practices energy healing in Cincinnati, Ohio, where she also volunteers at a children's grief center. Her memoir of early mother loss and long-term grieving, The Art of Reassembly, was published this year, 2021, and she leads a monthly book club for adults bereaved in childhood. Her essays have appeared at the Good Men Project, M Magazine, The Manifestation, The Cincinnati Inquirer, and The Mighty. Peg and her husband have three grown children and one grandchild. Welcome, Peg. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I thought I'd, I, I thought I'd start the way you start the book. Uh, you start with a quote from Hope Edelman, which I appreciate quite a bit. I'm, as you could imagine, quite interested in long-range loss. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, the aftergrief is where we learn to live with a central paradox of bereavement, that a loss can recede in time yet remain so exquisitely present. Uh, beautiful quote. And I yes. think does set us in motion for our conversation. Um, you know, this show came about because my wife died and that was 26 years ago. Wow. So that's also a long range loss. And I'm just so uh, interested in how that affects me, you know, each year subsequently. And then, of course, for someone who with loss as a child like you, and I'll have you talk about that in a minute, um, such different developmental state, radically different developmental stages that you've met in your in your loss, um, and I think uh, what we're capable of is different at different time at different stages of our lives, huh? Absolutely, that is absolutely true, and I think the more that people can be aware of that, the better it is for children and adults. So let's start at the beginning um, with the loss of your mother. And also, I'm so aware, having lived with an ill partner and children, so aware of the time before the loss, uh, a child living with illness is also a big deal. Yes. Even kids whose parents do not die are deeply affected by that. Um, Can you talk about how that was in your family? Sure. Um, I actually, I was seven years old when my mom died, and she had been diagnosed with breast cancer two years before that. And, but that's stuff I've pieced together for myself or asked about later. I didn't, I understood that she was sick. She went to the hospital from time to time. And my grandma, you know, was around a lot, things like that. But I, I didn't, if I was told explicitly anything about her having cancer, or I, I don't recall it. I don't think it was discussed with us, the younger children in any event. Mm. Um, so I experienced her, her death really is somewhat is sudden. Like it was a sudden event to me. It came out of the blue to me, uh, even though 
And actually, I think I was told anecdotally that she died sooner than like the medical team expected. So they they may have been a little stunned also, but not as stunned as you. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Although I've also, even just in the as an adult, even the last few years, I've really contemplated that that time period, and I think that I must have known. I must have had some, you know, physical or just emotional awareness that that something was not right. And that I think to the extent that I experienced anxiety afterward, I think it was also rooted in the before of, of that's, that. That's so interesting because having had children, you know, navigated loss with children myself, uh, we had a long time to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and we decided they were going to feel it anyway. We may as well tell them everything. Yes. And, you know, not not that many people make that choice, but I would say that their anxiety about that loss is a lot lower than a lot of people who come to see me in adulthood. I can totally believe that. I really can. Now, it I mean, this was a long time ago, over uh, 51 years ago that my mother died. And so it was 1970. It was the late 60s when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was just not a time where people had had the value for expressing grief openly. And, and honestly, I think it was also a time where patients were not told uh, sometimes the complete truth of their situation. Yes. And and just to add to it, for instance, my wife was supposed to live six months. She lived uh, over eight years beyond that. Wow. Moment. And um, I, I think it's gotten she was on a cusp with her particular illness where people are living longer, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. people had less time then to figure out what to do either. True, true. I don't think the adults in my family were, I don't think they were speaking to each other. I just think it was like an elephant in the room that mm-hmm. was just, no one knew what to do with it. So they just sort of worked worked around it. One thing that resonated, I was thinking of a particular client I had who also lost her mother very young and nobody talked about it too much. And uh, there was a similar sense of kind of haziness and mystery and who was she and all that. And uh, I, re- I, I thought of her completely when you started trying to piece together what had happened, um, who she was before that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, tr- you tried to make her real. Exactly. That's right. You know, for me, this this particular person I'm thinking of, every time we were talking about her mother, it was like there was this big blank in the room. And and we were trying to generate any memory, right? (laughs) Right. Even when, I mean, when someone loses their parent very young, like before they would naturally have memories, that certainly would be expected. But I, I encounter quite a few people in, whose parents were maybe my age, you know, that age, seven, eight, nine, and they don't, the loss of memories is quite, I think it's pretty common. In my I, I agree. I agree. And part of that is because memory is something that uh, requires reinforcement in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our memories are alive and they, and they have to be interacted with in some way. To, so if that all gets shot down, uh, if nobody's talking about the person, to me, it's much less likely that you're going to have memories. That makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of, I mean, in my my experience, we had the initial, you know, mom has died and we 
kind of pick up ourselves up and move on, you know, carry on as best we can from a practical standpoint. And then uh, several years later, my dad remarried and that took us into a whole new territory of not talking about mom. And Mm. I think that layer of we're a new family and we're, you know, we're living now in this way. um, I think that it really did a lot to it's suppress my memories or I sure, suppress is such yeah. a strong word, but um, sort of disconnect me from my memories. Cause I think they were there. They are there. Yeah. You know, when I was um, doing my paperwork, uh, figuring out who would have my children, if I also died, mm. um, my primary question was who will keep everyone in? Oh, I and love I, that. I, and I was also thinking of that reading the book because you didn't just have one loss. That right. one loss led to a loss of place, a loss of the kids that you went to school with, a loss of the relatives on your mother's side. You know, uh, it's like a cascade of loss instead of the one loss, which is That's big right. enough. That's right. Were you Thank aware you. of that at the time or is that more retrospective? Uh, more retrospective. At the time, I mean, I was sad to leave my school. That was a very, very hard and painful transition. Um, the change of family dynamic, like the focus on my stepmother's family, that that didn't bother me at the time. I think I was swept up in the, oh, this is new and different. It would be mm. nice to leave behind painful memories. Let's, <laughs> let's start over. And my parents had another child. So we had a baby in the family and I was 12 when he was born. And that was, you know, it was fun. Um, it was later, it was really when I was an adult and had my own kids and realized and I wasn't that close to my my stepmother's family at that point in time, and because that was, I didn't have the lifelong relationship with them, and I didn't have, I had a disconnected relationship with my original cousins. So I felt in a certain way like I didn't, I didn't really have any family. I mean that that's an exaggeration because I right. did have them, but this the felt sense inside was sort of like. I don't really feel like I belong completely in either place. And that was, that was a weird feeling. I didn't, I was sad about that. And the loss of connection with my grandma, that, that is a real sorrow. And uh, it was interesting to me that you were very clear that you misinterpreted that to some extent at the time. Yes. As her kind of not caring anymore, which wasn't the truth. Um, Before we get too far away from it, I'd love for you to share the piece in your book about the funeral, um, because I'm I'm sure that you you worked some to resurrect that experience, but it's very vivid. And I think to hear that experience from a, uh, a young child's perspective is is really helpful. Would you share that? Sure. Great. The morning of the funeral, I watched men in dark suits heave the casket from the hearse parked in the circle drive of our Catholic parish and carry it up the concrete stairs. I stood mesmerized by the slick unfolding of the metal stand where it was placed. Nearly unable to breathe as I walked down the aisle in the procession amid the booming organ music, my limbs tingling, I caught the familiar faces of my classmates, all seated together in the first few pews at the far left section. A flash of pleasure was followed by a funny feeling that I could not yet name. The opening line of an inner narrative in which being motherless set me apart from other kids, somehow defective in a basic way. 
Into the vast and eternal silence of my mother's absence, I felt myself falling, falling, falling. Where would I land? I had never known anyone without a mother before, could not imagine how to grow up without a mom. The world had tilted, and I had no idea what else might happen that could be even more terrible. Within weeks of mom's death, Mrs. Noble came first in our series of live-in housekeepers. Plump and round, with graying red hair, she wore light blue polyester dresses, almost like a nurse. Her white stockings swished when she walked, and she reeked of a sickly sweet floral perfume that remains my strongest association of her. Now that Mrs. Noble lived with us, a stranger sat in my mom's chair during meals. Stilted conversation alternated with awkward silence over a constant tremor of tension. Though never articulated, inside I felt the searing juxtaposition of our new reality with memories of my mom. The old life had flowed seamlessly. As my younger brother Tim and I ran in and out from playing in the driveway or the next room, my mom peeled potatoes at the sink, watching out the window for my sister's return from school. Mom would quickly dry her hands on a towel and dash out to meet Kate at the street. Tim and I stood by when Mom made chocolate pudding, eager to lick the spoon and scrape the saucepan after she poured the rich steaming liquid into individual bowls for that night's dessert. After Mom died, such ordinariness became disjointed. When Mrs. Noble made macaroni and cheese, the noodles went cold in the colander before she got around to stirring in the packaged cheese sauce, and then it wouldn't melt. Some days, when it was time to leave for school, the lunches were not made. Though respectful to her when my dad was around, on our own, I often reacted to Mrs. Noble by resisting direction, asserting my own way. She meant well, but I was not having it. Lacking words to express loss, in these early days, I acted it out. In time, we discontinued housekeepers and managed on our own. Then school mornings began with my dad's footfalls coming up the wood stairs, the quiet opening of the bedroom door, and then his cheerful booming, it's time to rise and shine. I'd groan and sit up so he knew I'd get out of bed. The night before, I had draped my school clothes over the desk chair, so the required red and green plaid uniform jumper, short-sleeved white blouse with pointed collar, red cardigan, and red knee socks awaited me with Oxford shoes beneath the chair. Now nine and in the fourth grade, I prized order and organization. My canvas tote bag leaned against the desk with its contents arranged in graduating order of size. Math, social studies, science, spelling, and language arts assignments were completed and filed in the proper pocket folders. My zippered case of pencils and pens was tucked neatly alongside the textbooks, spiral notebooks, and folders. Standing before the wide dresser with its attached mirror, I picked up my brush and pulled it through my thick brown hair now below my shoulders. Before my mom died, my hair was always cut short in a pixie. She had said I could have my much-coveted long hair when I was old enough to care for it myself. In her absence, my hair had grown out seemingly without anyone's notice. It usually took multiple tries to get my ponytail in place at the back of my head, off my neck, smooth and firm, but not too tight. Then I would make my bed and grab my book bag. The expressive young girl I had been, the girl with a mom, would have dashed downstairs demanding a frozen waffle. But circumstances had sculpted a mature, capable outer persona that masked inner anxiety. 
In this role of the responsible girl on school mornings, I first checked on my younger brother before proceeding to breakfast. He might be up, his hair standing on end from sleep, but not all the way dressed. He could be leaning on the side of his bed, hunched over a workbook, pencil in hand, doing forgotten homework. Hurry up, I'd admonish, exasperated. Then I'd gather up any books and folders that were scattered on the floor and stuff them in his bag, then go into the bathroom for a comb and a cup of water. Intent on the task, I'd startle when Dad called up the stairs. What are you two doing? Come down and eat or we'll be late. Coming. Tim's hair tamed, the cup and comb back on the sink. We picked up our bags. It goes obviously way beyond the funeral into the particular coping strategy that you employed, which was to be the responsible, one might today say, parentified child. Absolutely. (laughs) That that (laughs) describes me very well at that age, very much so. Were there any signs of that in your personality before that time or or was it really did it really come out in response to the loss? I think I was always a I had a fairly strong personality kind of bossy you might say. So mm-hmm. I my younger brother and I were you know we we really grew up together played together you know all the time at home. Um so I think it was natural. I think you know, Hope Edelman talks about this in the context of motherless women that we don't change our personalities in the wake of the loss, but certain aspects of our personality may become more developed than it might have otherwise if yeah, our moms kind of, hadn't died. Kind of potentized but, in a way. Yeah. So that's, what, that's kind of, I think I will always have, would have been a maternal kind of, you know, caring take care of others kind of person, but it, it really, it, I think it made me feel more in control. It was a control impulse. You know, it's almost time for a break, but one thing that stands out about that is you did have an older brother and an older sister. You weren't the oldest, yet your older brother was kind of grown almost, <laughs> or, you know, not going to take that role. And your older sister was one of the subsequent losses from my view. Um, certain way, yes. My older brother, he actually took care of us quite a bit, but school mornings, he left earlier. Uh-huh. Um, so let's come back after the break and talk about your sister because she captured my attention, um, both in terms of the impact on you of what, what happened with her, but also the impact on her, mm-hmm. you know, that her life completely changed when your mother died. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So let's talk about that when we get back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to sign up for my email list, you can do that there as well. There's a link. Uh, And to find Peg Conway, go to pegconway.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief 
That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Peg Conway about her memoir, The Art of Reassembly. Uh, And before the break, I just mentioned kind of being captured by your sister to an extent. And uh, I understand why that wasn't a a huge um, part of your story. And yet, um, you know, those kinds of things that happened, your your sister was blind. uh, Your mom did a lot to um, to make her life work basically that's, that's right that's right and and uh no one else stepped in to do the same job and so she was uh away at school a lot so that's right i i can imagine that was an impact on everyone you know that's that's another loss i realize not a complete loss but still um a big change Right, right. And I know it was a decision my dad did not make lightly. I don't think, I mean, it's not, I don't want to imply that that no one took care of my sister, but there was no one who could step in the way a stay-home mom could. And so I think my dad, faced with that reality, made a tough call uh, to send her to the state school for the blind um, in Columbus, Ohio. We live in Cincinnati, about 100 miles from there. And so I, I know that it, that was not easy for him, but he felt like it was what had to be done. And it was, it was, and it was another one of those things that just sort of happened. It wasn't like a big buildup. It was just like one day, oh, okay, it's going away to school. It's, it, I don't, I barely remember how that came about. It was like maybe yeah. two years after my mom had died, maybe a year, at least a year. You know, uh, I, I did not lose a parent as a child, but what did happen in my childhood is we moved a lot. Mm. And uh, I resonated with that just one day you're informed. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'd, we'd be going along with our lives as they were, and then we'd be informed we're moving to blank. Yes. <laughs> and, then, and at that time, of course, if you moved like that, you never saw the people from the last place again. Almost totally. That's true. No, I, well, I, I never did. We moved dramatic distances. And so, you know, it was just kind of, okay, now this is happening. So uh, I, I was in my mind turning up the volume on that. If, if um, what, what I was informed of were things like that, your mom has died, your sister's going to boarding school, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I think that's a sign of those times for sure. Very much, very um, much. And I fault no one, but it 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 was, even, even those things that are much smaller in the scope of life were very traumatic. 
Oh, absolutely. And I, I think I, as a, as a parent and an adult, I'm very attuned to like transitions. And I always try to make them intentional and make them like noteworthy because this is a big moment. We're moving from one thing to the other. We're not just like <laughs> flopping our, you know, like, okay, now we're done. Like it's, I don't know. It is. Well, and, and that was a subtext of your book. I felt you're growing understanding of why certain things uh, cause a reaction in you and most particularly transitions, wouldn't yes, you say? Yes, very much so. Which makes all the sense in the world, of course, to me. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Um, can you talk a little, because it seemed over the course of, of your story, like your relationship to those moments has changed in the sense that they might still happen, but but now you understand them pretty quickly and it seems as if there's been an evolution in that there's area. Very much so. I think, I mean, certainly I can still be caught off guard by unexpected anything like any of us can. But in general, I am much more tuned into like, oh, I'm I'm really irritable this week. Like, you know, what's going on? What's is going just, on? <laughs> is it just that I didn't sleep well or is it? Is it something else? Because often, I mean, I know this about myself. If I am manifesting anger or irritation, it is often a mask for something that is painful or sad. Mm -hmm. And so I have to get my, and then often if I, what's really going on? I will, then I will say to my, oh, well, yeah, this just happened. Yeah, you're, you're feeling it. And it, it doesn't have to be anything big. Like even when my kids, I mean, they're totally grown now and they're coming and going this totally part of our life. But when they were first going away to college and leaving at the end of the holidays, it would take me 24 hours to kind of get back to equilibrium of, okay, yeah, I'm living my life. You know, they're they're here and then uh-huh. they're gone, you know? That's not too bad, 24 hours. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I, was I, the, I appreciated the, that, that it ended up in the place of what's going on, you know, the curious yeah. place, because that's the only, the only way it does you any good, right? <laughs> right. Well, and I've also moved away. I mean, again, not 100% of the time, of course, but of judging myself negatively for having these feelings like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a wreck or I'm not a very Mm. good person because I, you know, dealt, I have to deal with these emotions that are kind of a holdover from this childhood loss. What's wrong with me? I don't like this about myself to being just more, well, this is who I am and this is just how it is and rolling with it. Well, I, and I guess, I guess there's a way that, um, that I go further for myself to a place of, I wouldn't want to be a person who didn't have anything about this. Well, that's true. It's a much more uh, you know, That would be so much worse. <laughs> you know, it, it shows that I care, that I have still responses sometimes to the experiences I've had in my life, especially the ones of loss. That's very true. I also think it's given me a lot of empathy and insight into other people. I don't take, I don't assume that people, you know, I just am willing to look below the surface a lot. Like, well, I wonder what's really bothering them, or I wonder if they're okay, or I wonder, wonder yeah. what that's about. Again, it's that I wonder question. Yes, yes, I, I agree with that. Um, boy, we've sure needed that in this period of the last you know, four to six years, oh, uh, yes. especially in COVID. Yes. <laughs> what could be going on in people's heads? I'm asking that of myself a lot. 
Hmm. Well, and even just the, the, the <laughs> wondering and the coverage of people like who are, you know, yelling at servers and restaurants and losing it with the person, you know, at McDonald's. Because, and, and right. I think, oh, oh, there's just Trauma. so much behind that. Right. So I, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent. And we're kind of talking about, too, uh, I want to I want to ask you for another excerpt that's really about. Um, fears that come from our losses mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, a fear of, of dying before your kids are grown. Phew, Absolutely. you outlived that, right? Um, yes. A fear of having the illness that your mother had, uh, you know, all those fears. And I wonder if you would share the part of the book about kind of dealing with whether you were at risk for the breast cancer that she had. Because sure. I do think that's a, a deep experience, especially maybe around breast cancer. Very much so. Very, very much so. Sure. Okay. So this is when I'm a young mom. Uh, given my history, I felt it important to teach my children about death. So we took them to visitations and funerals from an early age, passing along the training that I had received from my stepmother. I never named it aloud, but sheer terror of dying young, as my mom had, lurked behind these death education efforts, like fire drills for early mother loss. In my 30s, the angst naturally centered on breast cancer as I moved toward the ages of my mom's diagnosis and death. It became imperative to confront this medical risk, especially after my mom's youngest sister, then age 55, was diagnosed with breast cancer. At the time, I was still breastfeeding our youngest, which prevented the logical step of having a screening mammogram. When he transitioned to nursing only at waking and bedtime, my midwife suggested I go ahead and schedule the scan. However, at the testing center, I was told, valid scans cannot be obtained on lactating women. We will not see you today. Following this rebuke, I slinked away, unsure what to do next. Breastfeeding was integral to my mothering. Was the risk of future cancer worth upending our bond? That didn't feel quite right, but the expectation of my early death hovered relentlessly. I never knew when it would engulf me like a tornado, threatening removal from the life I loved. One day, I shared my worries with another mom at my children's school. She was a nurse, and her reply became a lifeline. I know someone else with this kind of family history. She sees a breast specialist once a year in addition to her regular physical You could do that and start mammograms when you're ready, she said, and she recommended a doctor. Thank you so much. At my first appointment with Dr. Cornell, this sound rationale could not prevent my trembling in the waiting room. I had traversed the labyrinthine halls of the hospital complex to the office suite as though walking the plank to a death sentence. Posters on the wall advertised wigs, while pamphlets in a rack illustrated how to perform a breast self-exam. Suddenly, it all felt too real. What was I doing here? I could not possibly have breast cancer. Yet, my mom had confronted the, my mom had confronted the disease at my age. My heart broke to imagine what she must have endured. An image of my dad flashed through my mind, seated on my twin bed in the room I had shared with my sister, our two brothers standing behind him. I heard again how dad's voice cracked when he said, Well, kids, we have an angel in the family. The memory dissolved as I heard my name called to see the doctor. In the exam room, after I explained my situation, the nurse, Nina, looked straight at me with sorrow in her gray eyes as she said, Oh, I am sorry. You were so young. 
She spoke as though my mom had died weeks ago rather than decades. Thank you, I stuttered, flustered, but also touched by her sensitivity to childhood grief. Unexpected in any setting, but especially in a clinical one. When reciting my family medical history, I had grown used to the listener's eyes widening at my mom's early death and its cause. Next would come a thorough questioning about other family members while making careful notations in my file, and I would feel like an exotic lab specimen. This time was different. From the first, Dr. Cornell defied my medical stereotypes. Slender and fit, she was about my age and looked like she had just come from the beach, with tan skin, dark eyes, and blonde highlights. I sensed our mutual assessment of one another as we talked. To my great relief, she did not order me to stop breastfeeding and have a mammogram. Such restraint earned my trust. She only urged a mammogram in general terms. Unlike all the other health professionals I had ever told my story to, Dr. Cornell seemed unfazed by my mom's premenopausal cancer. All women are at risk for breast cancer, she said with a small shrug. Your aunt was at menopausal age when she was diagnosed. That's very different than your mother, who was young. You may have more risk, but we all need to be vigilant. From her vantage point, it seemed, I was one woman among many with risk potential, not a uniquely doomed individual. Rather than sweeping me up in fear, her understated manner made me feel grounded. Continuing in a pragmatic tone, she handed me a brochure on the genetic testing program at the University of Cincinnati. I strongly suggest you pursue this, she said, her chocolate brown eyes fixed on mine. The genetic counselor advised that my aunt was the person to be tested because her cancer history would focus the search. When the results showed that my aunt did not have the gene, it meant that, my, that presumably my mom had not and that neither did I. This outcome indicated almost nothing new and the ambiguity was not reassuring. However, it did affirm my plan for annual assessments with Dr. Cornell. By the next year, the baby weaned, I had a mammogram, and it was totally normal. You have great breasts, Dr. Cornell said, characteristically frank as she prodded and pressed my flesh during the subsequent appointment. Why, thank you, I replied, grinning. Laughing, she said, I meant the tissue is clear and they scan well. <laughs> that really made me laugh when I read it. And the first time, <laughs> you know, just I, what stood out about that scene is, is really the difference that empathy makes. That is so true. I love that doctor so much. She actually retired a couple of years ago. I went to her for like over 20 years and I never had a problem or maybe once I had a weird scan and she took care of it right away. Um, she really she really was a, an important touchstone, I guess you would call it. And, you know, I've worked with uh, with cancer for a long, long time, run groups and had many clients with cancer. Um, and uh, it's it's always radically clear to me how much better people do, even if things go badly, when they have an empathic practitioner. Mm, I can believe that. I uh, totally can believe that. You know, there's more trust. You're not thinking, should I ask someone else? Or you know, <laughs> that's very uh, true. That's very true. It's, it it really changes things medically, not just emotionally, but surely emotionally. And there's been a lot of study about that, but it hasn't fully caught on. It I've hasn't not, fully caught on. Fortunately, I've not had serious health situations of my own where I've had to like grapple with things like that. But I have supported other people, and I I can easily see where that's the case. And of course, they were used to dealing with people 
who had cancer. So they weren't as reactive to your situation. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that helps too, that they're just like, oh, this is this is something we do. Don't worry. <laughs> You're in good and, hands. You know, they kind of knew the score in a way. And they yes? were so kind that that a nurse who was her assistant, which every year when I went, she would comment on how young I was when my mom died. And they had they just hit a few homey touches and they clearly it was like a women's place. They were mm-hmm. they were tending women in a in a difficult time and they were clin- they're, they're clinically very sharp of course but they're all they were just kind and i think that was not just to me cuz i went to her for a long time i think they were like that they're just like that yeah well i i do feel people that that um went into breast cancer let's say uh i don't know 20 to 30 years ago the the, the landscape really changed um, because of advocacy, uh, you know, there started being women's breast clinics and just uh, I feel there was a, a, a kind of uh, undertone of feminism, maybe, or, mm-hmm. you know, well, an you know, undertone of, of humanism is yes. a better word. And that really probably affected what you're talking about, you know. Well, I think people didn't even always want to say the word breast cancer at the time that my mom was sick, literally. That's true. In fact, uh, my my wife was one of the founders of an organization called called the Women's uh, Cancer Resource Center in Mm. Berkeley, California. And, of course, because it was the Women's Cancer Resource Center, of a vast number of the people who came there had breast cancer. And the reason they founded it was that they could not find support for, Makes sense. for women's, uh, women's cancers. My wife did not have a women's cancer, but she was an advocate anyway, right? Um, she had a, uh, actually a cancer that was more likely an old white man. She was black. <laughs> but, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, but, you know, Suffice it to say, most of the women who started that place had breast cancer, and they really changed the landscape. Um, well, certainly, women of our generation and are have been very strong in that. And definitely, helped. definitely, it's time for a second break already. Oh my uh, goodness! We'll, we'll be back in a few minutes, listeners. You can find me at weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page. There's a link to my novel there too, if you want to check that out. And to find Peg Conway, you can go to pegconway.com. Be back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Your 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Peg Conway, the author of The Art of Reassembly. And referring to the title, um, I, I guess I would say that the book, the, the undertone of the book is about uh, finding your relationship with your mother throughout your lifetime you know, obviously a relationship with loss. <laughs> it would, the two would involve each other for Very sure. Very interconnected. Um, and, and um, you know, it's it, almost everybody who comes on the show, well, everybody who comes on the show has eventually done some kind of service because of what they've experienced. And of course that applies to you too. But it, it does seem as if we've got to be a, a quite a ways through our own uh, pathways before that is an impulse. Uh, you know, you work with grieving kids, you run mm-hmm. a book group, you energy work. People are going to come to you for that in hard situations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, what would you say it took for you to want to um, give in the area of your own loss and your own pain? I think it took kind of getting it, I don't want to say metabolized or alchemized, like it needed to be a thing. I needed to see it as its own thing that and get past the point where it was constantly a trigger, like just mm-hmm. a, a random thing. I think my first service coming out of of coming out of work, coming out of my grief was mothering my children. I think my desire to uh, mother them as an at-home parent was, and my style of parenting. And I think it was very much connected to wanting to connect with my mom. Then that's a very retrospective uh, realization. I'm glad you bring that up because sometimes, of course, when, when people lose a parent young, they have trouble as parents, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't get the impression that you did to any great degree. I don't know if it's because your mother had parented you so well up to seven or, you know, but do, do you think it impacted your parenting? Obviously, it did positively in the sense that you were very present and wanted to be there. Right. In case I died young, right? Like, uh, you I know, to invest in them. That's a that's a positive presence. Did it impact you in any other ways? Um, I think it impacted me in terms of well, the wanting to be there. But I think what things that helped me parent positively, you know, kind of overcome the the wounds and losses. In part, was I have a terrific husband who's very supportive. I, I also think even though I struggled as a result of my stepmother in some ways, I witnessed her raising my younger brother and 
that was a very educational experience. And so I had, I was familiar with small children. Mm. Um, I also, I want to credit the midwives who cared for me during uh, maternity, like pregnancy Mm. and birth. They were very maternal toward me. And I think their, their one in particular, uh, her care of me in that way, that passage set me on a, set me at a place of strength from the beginning. That's very powerful, Peg, that, uh, that uh, you know, a midwife you know briefly, basically. I mean, you may have known her longer because you had three children, but um, to have that kind of impact, we never should underestimate the impact we have on people. Well, it really ties into the discussion we had about empathy of healthcare providers. Midwives typically spend more time with you and, you know, they talk with you about your concerns and all that. Um, But I think having that that sense of safety and sense of being empowered, I had, I mean, I had a few complications with my first birth, but nothing dire. Um, And so I emerged from that feeling powerful. And I think, and I've actually had the chance to share this in some midwifery meetings, you know, groups of midwives that I feel that I would be a very different kind of mother without midwifery care. That's really interesting. And it's in, I want to I wanted to linger on your on your stepmother just for a, a tiny minute because she's such a big part of the book. Um, it's so clear how your your uh, how she and your father failed you, and um, not as miserably as some of the people I work with. Right. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but but still, to it made me think about. Um, you know, my kids all have different situations. And so there's no one who has the same feeling about all of them, except me. Mm. (laughs) And um, I think that that does impact things. So you're watching her parent your, your stepbrother differently. And is that because she didn't give birth to you? Is that because she met you at seven or, or nine? Is that, because, you know, you can't ever know, but it does impact, doesn't it? I think so, yes. And I, I actually think it's based on my experience. I think it's better to just let it be different and just be like, acknowledge you know, it. Yeah. And just kind of let it be real. And then it's not scary or shameful. It's just, well, it's natural, you know. And not that well, this the step parent doesn't care about the stepchild; they just care about them in the way that they care about them. And that's that's a really good point. I I agree completely. I mean, you can probably tell him just like tell it like it is kind of right. person, but um, but also she was really trying on the level of the thing they did wrong from my view is not make your mom a part of it. Correct. That's the biggest wrong. But saying, I want to be your mom, you know, I want to adopt you. That's not terrible. Correct. uh, As long as we're not erasing somebody. Right. So, I I don't know. We could talk all day about that. Um, But instead of that, um, to me, the, the important thing you had to do was create a relationship with your mother, get to know your mother. Would you read that last ex- excerpt about uh, one of the things you did to try to know her? Yes, this is a meeting that I initiated with one of her college classmates. 
Anne and I arranged to meet on a Friday afternoon. Pulling in the driveway, I adopted a confident air to tamp down nerves, as though this were a business appointment or interview for an article. Anne answered the door, looking fit, trim, and spry, round-faced with wide eyes. Her medium bob hair was wispy and gray with remaining traces of brown. I followed her back to the kitchen, where she told me about her children and grandchildren while she heated soup for her husband Greg's lunch. Her hands shook with tremors, I noticed, and she spilled a little of the soup as she poured from saucepan to bowl. Greg sat at their kitchen table, which was covered with newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, working a crossword. The scene conjured up my grandparents' apartment during my childhood, and I became wistful in the presence of my mom's classmate. What would my mom be like if she were alive today at age 84? I imagined her much like Anne, or like her own mom, tending to home and husband, her life oriented around several generations of family. A deep, middle-aged longing to know my mom as an elder rose quickly and then passed as I refocused my attention on the visit's purpose. The two of us adjourned to their family room at the back of the house and sat next to each other on the couch. From the coffee table, she picked up a stuffed 8x10 photo book with a faux red leather cover and black paper pages, her college album. Opening it, she caught me off guard by asking, did your mom live in the dorm or commute? I wondered why she thought I would know if she did not, and my insides cringed with the inadequacy familiar to motherless daughters. I don't really know. If I had to guess, I would say commute, I offered. I lived in the dorm. I suspect she commuted because she's not in a lot of my pictures. My heart sank. This did not sound promising. We used to have picnics at Burnett Woods, Anne recollected fondly, pointing to a series of shots that included my mom, referencing a park that was still located across from the present-day, much-expanded hospital. I picked your mom up at home once in the summer to go meet some friends, and we were in a crash not far from their house. Your mom's leg got cut near the knee. She had to get stitches, Anne recalled. I remember that scar, I crowed, and that it was from a car accident during college. We turned to a photo of five beaming women seated in a semicircle and wearing bright colored dresses, opening gifts. Right away, I recognized my mom on the right, Anne in the center. Anne had met Greg during the third year of college, and they married a few months before my parents. There were a bunch of us who got married right after graduation, so the class had a joint shower, Anne said. She had set aside a few items for me to take, including a wallet-sized portrait of my mom in her nursing uniform with an astonishing note on the back from my mom to Anne. It said, best of luck and happiness to you and Greg. Maybe we can get together sometime. I guess recipes and not nursing will be the topic of discussion then. We shall see what we shall see. I asked, what do you think my mom meant by that? Did she work after she was married? I don't know, did she? Anne seemed jarred by the question, or possibly by my lack of knowledge. She diverted into a story about her own work as a visiting nurse for a couple years, which stopped completely after her second child's birth. As she talked, I relaxed, realizing that she simply had no frame of reference for early mother loss and the degree of disconnection that I experienced. Did you and my mom keep in touch after graduation and marriage? We lived near each other early on, and we played bridge together, Anne said. Though no longer living close by when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, Anne remembered speaking to her on the phone around that time. She couldn't believe God would let this happen to her when she already had a blind child, Anne said carefully, watching my face. Yes, I've heard that before, I said. 
Neither of us spoke for a minute, and then Anne offered, sounding almost apologetic. That's how we saw things then, how we talked about God. I can understand that, I said. Back at home, I put the photos she had given me on a shelf without looking at them further or showing them to my husband, uncertain what to think or feel about the encounter. I inhabited a cloud of confusion for several days until I could approach it again, this time with a researcher's mindset. What had I learned through this interview? Quite a lot, I concluded, about my mom in her 1950s college context. She had had friends and a social life. She had engaged in academic pursuits. She had dated and married in a particular era, which may have circumscribed her choices in ways that seemed foreign to me. Gut instinct had led me to conduct these interviews. Now I could see there were stepping stones into my mom's life. Others' recollections allowed me to glean something of her experiences and personality, and I felt grateful to feel more acquainted with her. You know, all of the things you did to, to learn more about her, it was, uh, you, were, you were kind of a, a detective in that place, and yet also her daughter trying to know her. Yes. Uh, but you were a pretty good detective. That's- I thought of myself as an like, sort of like an archaeologist, like uh-huh. digging through layers. I have a friend who has a graduate degree in history, and she went on a dig once, and I actually reached out to her like, tell me about the dig. I feel like I'm doing this sort of thing. No, I think I think you were. And the thing is, it does, I, I've gone through this with clients, it does make the person you've lost more real. Right? It really does. I mean, it truly she's, does. She's a person in your life. Sometimes when, uh, you know, I'm thinking of this same client, as she got more information, she even went to her mother's country of birth mm. um, to learn more about her or be with her more. And she cleared up for me over the course of the time. She got more real. Um, so I could only imagine, as I was reading your book, that that happened for you too. It absolutely did. It's it's a real delight, actually. Yeah, it's, a really it's never good too feeling. late for that. It Even is never the loss too late. Is the loss. It and is I, never too late. I do want to highlight that because um, people sort of feel when someone dies, everything's over, and I don't think of it that way at all. Our relationships, our relationships keep growing and changing, don't they? They do. Peg, thanks so much for being with me today. I've enjoyed our conversation very much. Thanks for having me. Likewise, I've enjoyed it very much. Good. To find Peg Conway, you can go to pegconway.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.